0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Father, as we struggle to find our way, we pray that You would illuminate the path through Your Word for us, that You would apply it to our hearts, help us to see the love that we are called to. We ask this in Christ's name, Amen. Although the headlines these days are full of stories about people leaving religion behind, people do sometimes turn to religion. Sometimes they turn away from the lives they've led and seek something in religion. Have you ever wondered what it is that makes people turn to religion? I think the force that drives most change in people's lives is probably dissatisfaction. Whenever we have a sense that something important is missing from our lives, that's when we're likely to make a change. When we at Grace talk about longing for more grace, more depth, and more community, we're speaking to that sense of dissatisfaction. That feeling that those things are important, but also absent from our lives. We long for them. Like if you feel like, like grace and depth and community are, are are missing, this is a place where you could start finding them. Those are longings that drive you towards true Christianity. But they're not the longings that often lead people to turn to religion. That's something else. Instead, I think when people make a turn to religion, they tend to do it in search of one of two things. Either to find peace or to experience fulfillment. return turn to religion, seeking some sense of inner peace. You've made something of yourself. You've built something of your life. You've experienced a certain amount of success. You've brought order to the chaos of your physical existence. And then you come to realize that you're more than just a physical being, that you're a spiritual being as well. And as much as you have, it seems like there's something still missing, some further accomplishment that you need. And you want to find that, to start working on your spiritual self in order to find that thing that we call inner peace. Or maybe it's a longing for fulfillment, for meaning in life. Maybe you've come to the point in life when the ordinary pleasures aren't pleasurable anymore. When you ask yourself, surely there must be something more than this to life. There must be some higher purpose to my existence. Asking those questions puts you on a quest for some sense of inner fulfillment. But if these are the longings that drive you, the religion of Jesus might be a disappointment. Because when he describes the life that he calls his people to, it doesn't seem to be a life of peace and fulfillment. He says instead that if you follow him, neither of those things is going to happen for you in this life. Instead of peace, he says, there will be conflict, a sword. And instead of fulfillment... There will be sacrifice, the need to pick up your cross and to follow Him. If you take Jesus' words serious here, then He is redirecting our religious impulses. He's saying that the pious longings that often drive us to seek religion are not the things that we ought to be focused on. But instead, we've been called to a different reality. Let's take a look at our text and see as Jesus makes this case. He begins by correcting a misconception. He's been describing a life of turmoil and conflict where His followers are resisted, persecuted, even killed. And it may seem as if that's not the sort of thing That the Messiah was meant to bring. Surely he was meant to bring peace into our lives, not conflict. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword that he's speaking of here is the sword of conflict, the sword of division. The coming of the Messiah has driven a wedge into this society, into this community, because it compels a choice. If the king has come, either we receive him as king and enter into his kingdom, or we resist the king and oppose him. That's the conflict, the fundamental conflict that he says is the reality that he's come to bring. My being here has created not peace, but this This sword-brought division. It reminds me of something Simeon says to Mary in the temple when he greets that holy family and he sings his song to God, where he says, Now let your servant depart in peace. He also addresses these words to Mary. He says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. Then parenthetically, he says to her, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's the sword he's talking about. His presence here is a call to action, and how we respond to that call divides us. It separates us. It creates this conflict. And to illustrate the reality of the conflict, the example he uses is the most unnatural kind of conflict that is imaginable from a biblical standpoint. Conflict within the household. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own Household. When you think of all of the different authorities that God has established for human beings, the most fundamental sort of community or government that we see beyond self government is the government of the household. And what's interesting is that it's a creation ordinance. The first household is created before sin, not afterwards. So Our households, our families are not a necessary evil. They are part of what it means to be human before sin. So important that that first table of the law addresses the duties of of man to God, the second addressing the duties of man to man. The very first commandment in the second table is the command to honor our fathers and mothers. Relating to the order of the household. The unity of the household. If the conflict Jesus is talking about is dividing not just nations, but families, households, it demonstrates how profound this conflict is. How contrary it is to the way things ought to be. In the midst of that kind of conflict, He gives us what you might think of as instructions for how to deal with it, like how to live in these divided times. He says, don't put family before Christ. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You can't love your family more than you love him. Secondly, he says, don't let the conflict prevent you from following him. He says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So he acknowledges that it's difficult, that it's divisive, and says, even so, you must take up your cross and follow me. And then he says, don't pursue fulfillment. Seek sacrifice. Whoever finds his life will lose it, he says, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You might think of these words of Jesus as a kind of challenge to the apostles, a charge to them, but it's very different than the charge that Joshua gave to God's people. A few years ago, we preached through the book of Joshua. In Joshua 24, at Shechem, there's this covenant renewal ceremony where Joshua addresses the people and he articulates a choice that has to be made. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua speaks for himself and for his household. The implication in that moment is that while he may not be able to speak for everyone, all of the tribes, all of the nation, he can speak for his own households. The household will serve the Lord in unity. Now the gospel call is like that Covenant renewal ceremony. It is a call that is made not just to us as individuals, but to us collectively. To us as households. As a people. As Paul says in Acts chapter 2. As Peter says, I'm sorry, for the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So that hasn't changed. But it is a call to households. Now, Israel, in Joshua's day, had a sense of itself as a covenant community, and it led to strong intergenerational ties. It led to strong households, family. The coming of the Messiah should have resulted in the entry of those households united into the kingdom. He was their king. He had come for his people. His people should have come together as one received him, but instead the the nation was divided. The households were divided. They should have entered in unity. Instead, this sword of decision tears them apart. Jesus, when he gives this charge, says something shocking when you compare it to the way that Joshua speaks. Like humbling. Humbling to hear Jesus' words and to realize, unlike Joshua, you can't even speak for your household. You can only answer for yourself. Sometimes it feels like we can barely do that. It's humbling to realize how deep the conflict goes. You cannot choose who they will serve. The conflict between belief and unbelief runs so deep, that you may have to follow Jesus all alone, he says. In saying this, if you reflect on it, Jesus is puncturing a cherished sentimentality that we in the church are especially guilty of. He's puncturing our family-first sentimental rhetoric letting all the air out of that way of thinking. Family comes first, we tell ourselves. The most dangerous errors are the ones that fly under the radar. The most dangerous errors are the ones we don't see. Actually, the most dangerous errors are probably the ones that we don't believe are errors at all. The ones that are hidden in plain sight because we believe that they're good. We believe that they're praiseworthy. Family comes first is one of those things. In the early days of our church, one of the things we were encouraged to do was to think about the place where we live and what some of its unacknowledged errors might be. Like what were the things that we believed were unquestionably good, but actually weren't? What were the false assumptions that everyone around us seemed to believe were true? What were the sins that we celebrated as if they were virtues? The things that because we weren't aware that they were sinful, could so easily come to define us. One of the answers that we came up with was this. The belief all around us that family comes first. I know that sounds bad. Like, I can hear how that sounds as I'm saying it. I know it sounds terrible. And I realize there are a lot of other churches where if you were there this morning, family comes first would be the moral of the sermon. And I get that maybe after today, you'll be thinking about being there instead. (sighs) What can I say? This is where we live. We live in a place where people take for granted the virtue of putting family first. Where they believe that God Himself says nothing comes before family. We live in a place where churches continually sell themselves as the family church. Where every plan or program revolves around the need to serve and support families. And I'm not asking you to set aside your family-first convictions. Rather, I'm telling you that Jesus says set them aside. That Jesus says family doesn't come first. Unambiguously. Unambiguously. There's a difference between the physical household and the spiritual household. We haven't gotten there yet, but at the end of Matthew 12, while Jesus is teaching his followers, there's going to be a moment when his mother and his brothers show up. And something's going to happen that is very socially awkward. Jesus is not going to react in a socially appropriate way to the arrival of his family. He's not going to put family first. They want to have a meeting with him, and he kind of seems to ignore this and just keep teaching. It's so awkward that his disciples will call attention to the fact, excuse me, excuse me, Lord, but your mother and brothers are here as if he should suspend what he's saying. Now, not all of you grew up in the Southern church, but I did. And I can tell you that a good Southern preacher, if he was in the middle of a sermon and suddenly his mom and his brothers came in, this is not the way he would react. He wouldn't do what Jesus does and just ignore that reality. This would be a cue to go into a soliloquy about his sweet mama. Now, she had raised him in the faith, and what a, a wonderful matriarch she was that we should all aspire to be like. And it would be sweet and sentimental and, and would warm your heart to hear the words he said about his mama. But Jesus doesn't do anything like that. Jesus says, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And then, stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's Jesus preaching. He makes a distinction between the physical household and the spiritual household. It's not that one is bad and one is good. But there's a priority that Jesus places. And the priority is on the spiritual. All the honor and the deference that we think He should show to His physical household. Instead, He lavishes on His spiritual household. This is my mother. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. That's what Jesus says. This is my household. He's not saying abandon your physical household and cling to your spiritual household. But if it comes down to it, you see which one Jesus puts first. Our family-first sentimentality needs to die the death so that we can embrace a cross-first way of living. Jesus first. To follow after Him. And until we do that, we do not have the mind of Christ. We are not thinking in a Christ-like way about our priorities. Our baptismal vows do not call parents of young children to raise their children in peace and fulfillment, to cultivate their success or their happiness. Instead, those vows call them to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To raise them as disciples and followers. As people who will endure conflict and make sacrifices in order to take up their crosses and follow Him. That's what must come first in this spiritual household. And having said all this, Jesus does do something that would be easy to miss. He leads us to the true way to peace and fulfillment. It's not that peace and fulfillment have no place in the Christian faith. It's about finding the right place for those things. That's what Jesus is getting at right at the end of that paradoxical statement of his, where he says, whoever finds his life will lose it, And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That sounds very Zen-like. And it's easy to hear those words and think that Jesus is saying something along the lines of if you really love something, then let it go. And if it comes back to you, it will be yours forever. Something like that. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying... There's some virtue in loss that through losing you really gain or anything like that. What he's saying is we have to get our chronology right. If we search for things in this life which cannot be found in this life, then we will end up empty. We will lose everything. But if in this life we seek the life that is to come, then we will find what we are truly looking for the path to real peace and real fulfillment is the path of the cross when Jesus says take up your cross and follow me he's not saying take up your cross and follow me to death he's saying take up your cross and follow me through death into life where the peace and the fulfillment that you long for are actually to be found Direct yourself towards the life to come, not towards this life. If you think about it, the thing that that family-first sentimentality gets wrong, that it thinks that we can enjoy the blessings of this life if we just value the right things in this life enough. If you love your family enough, if you do the right things, if you create the right environment, everything will be perfect. Perfect. Everything will turn out the way that it should, and you will live a blessed life. But that's funny, because that's the same message of every other idol in this life. We're constantly being told that the way to find peace and fulfillment in this life is just to care about the right things in this life, to reorient our desires towards the right principles or patterns, habits, or people. And Jesus is saying, no, none of that. None of that will make any difference. The only anchor, the only orientation is in the life to come. Live for that. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus doesn't make promises about what things we can do or what things we can value in order to live happy now. Those aren't the kinds of promises Jesus makes. He says that in this life you're called to conflict and sacrifice. And if you're a faithful steward of the conflict and the sacrifice that God gives you, you will enjoy peace and fulfillment in the life to come. That means that the conflict that you experience now, that the sacrifices that you make now are not mistakes or errors or glitches. They're not signs that you've messed up, that you're not doing the right thing. They're not happening to you because you've done something wrong or that your values are misaligned. Those things are happening. They're there because something is wrong with the world. Because something is wrong with everything around us. And that in a fallen world, this is how things work. There will be conflict. There will be a a, a lack of fulfillment. Look, your household may be intact, your household may be broken, your own family may be your greatest support in life, your own family may be your worst enemies in life. You may face a lot of conflict. You may have to make a lot of sacrifices. You're not doing anything wrong. This is what you've been called to. Jesus says the life He's called us to, is like this. That's what taking up your cross and following Him is all about. We don't need to be sentimental. We don't need to pretend like this world is better than it is. It's not as hard as it really is. Jesus doesn't pretend. He does give us good news in the midst of this reality. The good news He gives us is this that I have made you into my brothers and sisters. I have made you into a spiritual household. You are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And He loves and cares for you. And is your friend and never your enemy. So love Him more than anything. Don't put anything before Him. He's put nothing ahead of His love for you. Follow Him through anything because He went through everything for you. Don't stop because there's conflict. Don't stop because it requires sacrifices. He endured every conflict and made every sacrifice for us. So regardless of what we've been called to and regardless of what hardship we face, let us take up our cross and follow Him together